0: like to ask you to stand now for the reading of God's word as we continue in our series in the epistle to the Colossians. We continue to amplify a portion of scripture that we were in the last time I was with you. It is Colossians 1, 13 and 14. And also I'm going to read a companion passage from 1 Peter chapter 1. So let us hear together the word of God. Paul wrote, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is God's holy word. May he open it to our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, come and speak to us from your marvelous word. Make much of your marvelous Son... And all that we can have in Him, in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. Hey, you can be seated. Thank you so much. Well, we come into in our study of Colossians to this portion that we were in a couple of weeks ago. Now, Colossians chapter one and verse uh, verses thirteen and fourteen. We spent a lot of time in it uh, in the previous week, but since it's Communion Sunday. And since my further study of it has simply opened the aperture of more that I've seen in this text, I want to, to amplify and move through and explain more richly one of the many great words in this passage, and it is the word in Colossians 1.14, redemption. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and I want to explore the riches of redemption with you, and just open the aperture a little bit more for you to understand this wonderful but not deeply understood aspect of what Jesus did for us. It's little understood, but I find that as I get down into conversations with people about their lives, their regrets, and their needs before God. It's little understood, this idea of redemption, but many people long for it, even though they don't understand it. I don't know if you know what a domain hoarder is. A domain hoarder is someone who uh, buys domain names ahead of when somebody might need them. And so he can sell it to them at a price. Domain hoarders. I've known a few in my life, actually. They made a little bit of a living at it. There was one such domain hoarder a number of years ago in 2005 named Roger Cadenhead. And upon the death of Pope John Paul II, Roger Cadenhead thought ahead and acted before the Catholic Church did, and he reserved and registered the domain name www.benedict16th.com. He bought the name before the, the new pope's name was even announced uh, uh, to the world at large. How he got that insider information, I don't know. Not sure I want to know. So he had the name before Rome knew it was needed. And on the right domain name can be worth a lot of money to somebody who really needs it. Caden had, however, did not want money. He was a Catholic himself, and he was happy for the church to own the name. He, he said, I, I'm, I'm not going to anger, a billion Catholics and my grandmother. So he uh, decided not to hold the name financial hostage. However, he did say before he gave the name over, he said he wanted three things. This is according to the story I read about him. He said, number one, I want one of those hats. (laughs) I'm not mocking or that's, that's in the story. That's what he wanted. I want one of those hats. Number two, I want a free stay at the Vatican hotel. Okay. I didn't even know there was one. And then number three, he said, I want complete absolution. What is absolution? I believe in the Catholic faith, it's release from guilt and punishment. He said, I want complete absolution, no questions asked, for the third week of March 1987. Okay. It really makes you wonder what happened the third week of March, 1987, doesn't it? But, you know, as I guess humorous and, and human as that story is, it might remind you of uh, a week of your own life that you would love to be released from guilt and punishment over. Or a decade, perhaps, or maybe a single night. There are a lot of people that with tongue-in-cheek like Roger Caden had or with deep and sorrowful hearts like so many I've spoken to really would love to be released from guilt and punishment over a period of time in their life or maybe for their entire life. That's the longing for what we call redemption. It's a human longing when conviction of sin rolls over the heart. Now, we don't understand what the Bible teaches about redemption that deeply. And I want to go into it with you so that perhaps you can share it with someone who longs for a release from guilt, who feels they have a price on their head even today. Redemption is a word as you look at it in the text that is seldom used in our language. It's it's a Christian word it's a biblical word fundamentally. This is where the word came from in our English language, although I'm going to trace it back into the culture of Paul's time. We don't understand redemption. In fact, we have it completely backwards from what the Bible teaches about it. We think that when somebody redeems themselves, it's an action they take to justify themselves. After they've committed an act or, or they've lived a, a certain kind of life they may turn the other turn, turn a new leaf we say and they may work through good works for the rest of their life to redeem themselves right you're familiar with that way we use it we think of redemption as something you can do through a series of good deeds to redeem yourself from your bad deeds to make up for those things and to earn peace with people or with god that's an that's entirely 180 degrees out of phase with what the bible teaches The Bible teaches there is nothing you can do in your good deeds here or before God that will ever be able to redeem you from the consequences and the guilt of what you've done. No, you have to be given your freedom by God. And he does that through the marvelous work of redemption that Jesus Christ worked for you. Notice it is in Jesus Christ, the beloved son, verse 14, that we can have redemption which leads to the forgiveness of sins. It's not something we do through our own good deeds. We cannot redeem ourselves. It is something that God gives to us through something his son did. How would I define redemption biblically? It's to be given your freedom through the paying of a price. To be given your freedom through the paying of a price. And it's beautifully seen in scripture. It's connected to another scriptural word, and that is ransom. That's why I read 1 Peter chapter 1 to you, which talks about the fact that we have been ransomed, Peter said. We have been ransomed from the futile ways of our past with precious blood, the precious blood of Christ. So redemption is connected to the act of ransoming someone, of paying a price that was on their head and buying their freedom. We understood ransom a lot more clearly, don't we? We've seen that thrown around in our society a lot today. So I want to go into these two ideas with you. They're precious And they are deeply connected to why Jesus came. Jesus did say in Mark 10, 45, and in many other points in his earthly ministry, the Son of Man has come to to give his life as a ransom for many. How many know that Bible verse? How many are aware of it? It's connected to this text. It's the greatest work Jesus came to do. So if you're struggling today, and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, here or watching, and you're struggling with the fact that you believe because of the way you've conducted your life, and if God is holy and just, there must be a price held by God over your past. This is the key that can, unop- that can open that lock for you. If you're a believer, this, this study will open the riches of redemption for you even more greatly than you already know. As I often do, I'm going to make this very clear and simple as I can. I'm going to answer three questions as we open this one phrase from Colossians 1.14, but we'll sweep across the New Testament to do it. Three questions. Number one, what does the idea of redemption mean? Number two, why did it have to happen? What puts me under this sentence from God? And finally, how was it accomplished? What does redemption mean? Why did it have to happen, and how was it accomplished? Let's go into these together. Here's the first one: What does the idea of redemption mean? It's a murky thing in our minds. We've got it completely backwards from what the Bible teaches. So what I'm going to do is go through both the prominent Greek words and, and tell you a little bit about them to to open the aperture a little bit and let you see the strength and power of these words, and I'm going to go through the key passages that teach the redemptive ministry of Jesus Christ. The most prominent word in the Greek New Testament that's used to describe redemption, it's the Greek word in Colossians 1.14, translated redemption, is the Greek word lutrao. That means nothing to you or me, but when you understand its background, I think it'll illuminate some things for you. The Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, the theologian who, who wrote Foundations of the Christian Faith, analyzed the, the beautiful truth of redemption. It's a tremendous work that he did on it. And he talks about the Greek word that's at the base of this whole idea. He wrote this, the Greek word at the base of the major word grouping redeem, redeemer, and redemption is the word luo. We would, tra- we would transcribe that or transliterate that. L-U-O, that's how it sounds in our language and looks. Luo. In fact, if you ever took one week of Greek, this is the word that you learn in your first week of Greek class. Luo. And you learn that that, you take that as your basic Greek verb and you learn to conjugate all Greek verbs spanning out from that. Luo, lue, slue, don't ask me to finish it, but anyway. So if you've ever toyed with Greek, you know a little bit about this word. It's a foundational word in the study of Greek, but it's also a marvelous word in the reality of your salvation. Dr. Boyce describes it as meaning to loose or loosen. It was used of loosening clothes or unbinding armor. When applied to human beings, listen, it signified the loosing of chains so that a prisoner became free. What a wonderful word. Luo, to be redeemed meant to be set free. It meant to have the chains that bound you from your sin broken. And it meant that the sentence over your head was taken away. He writes, it signified the loosing of chains so that a prisoner became free. At times it was used to describe the release of a prisoner by the payment of a ransom. In those cases, it meant to release by payment of a ransom price. So you've got being redeemed or set free from the penalty of your sin connected to a price. Those two never exist separate from each other. You're not redeemed because God has a change of mind. You're not redeemed because God's taken a closer look at your case and said, in your case, uh, the issue of sin is really not a big deal with me. You're not redeemed because you get into a negotiating point with God at the end of time and you stand before his throne. And as so many people tell me they look forward to doing, they're going to talk to him about their bad deeds. Yes, but their good deeds and they fully believe their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds and they will negotiate their way into eternity with God. None of that is true. You are only set free from the penalty of your past through the payment of a ransom. There's always a price to pay. No one gets into heaven free not a one of us, We're there because a price was paid. This is why Jesus said, I go to deliver and give my life as a ransom, a payment price, because my father has said a price must be paid for lost people. This word in chapter 2 of Titus, verse 14, is illuminated. By the way, in Mark ten fourteen, the Greek word that Jesus or that was used to describe what Jesus said as ransom is, is luo, lutron in that case, and it meant a slave's price. In Titus two fourteen, you see more of it. Titus writes about Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us, Lutrao, that's a form of luo that meant to buy something for yourself. This is interesting. He said, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to buy for us for himself, to redeem us from all lawlessness, all the lawlessness of our past, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Often the word lutrao was used in the slave markets of the time when a slave was on the slave block with a price on his head, a price. To, to buy him into freedom or to, to buy him into the service of another. And a person would walk into the marketplace and see a slave with the price on his head. He would pay that price and that slave was bought to belong to him now. And he would follow him out for life. So paying a ransom means paying a price that's on someone's head. But in Christ's case, it's also paying a price so that you now belong to him. You follow him as the one who paid the price for you. It's a beautiful and enduring word. Lutrao from Luo. To break someone's chains by paying the price on their head. Now, there's another word which is even more powerful. That's agorazo. Of course, that means nothing to you. It didn't mean anything to me until I studied it in my early days. But you uh, may already know the root word for it. Have you ever heard the phrase agoraphobia? How many of you? People who really have agoraphobia are not here today to raise their hands. (laughs) Because agoraphobia is the fear of public places. And it comes from the Greek word agora, which meant the marketplace. And agorazo was the Greek word which meant to go to the marketplace and buy something for yourself. It was the word to use when you describe someone going into the marketplace in ancient Rome and buying something for himself, particularly when they went into the marketplace and they bought a slave off of the auction block. To buy out of the marketplace, out of the Agora. And in the Roman Empire, there were always human beings in slavery and for sale because one third of the empire was made up of human slaves. So there was always brisk traffic. There are always thousands of people under the price of slavery. The Bible says that you were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20, and that is the word agorazo. Let me read the full text to you, 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. Paul speaking to Christians. But he's speaking to Christians who had begun to slip back into the old moral life of their past and who were stepping into some of the immorality of the culture around them again. And he's rebuking them. And he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For you were bought, you were agarazzoed with a price So glorify God in your body. What's he saying about all believers? We were in the slave market of sin. There was a price on our head. It was the penalty for all that we'd ever done in our past and the the penalty for the fact that we were sinners from birth. All of us were that way. And with that price on our head that we could not pay, we were helpless under the bondage of it and under the lifelong penalty of it. But the Lord Jesus Christ moved into the marketplace of humanity. And on that cross, he bought you. He paid a price for you. And at your moment of salvation, that price came into reality. When you turned from your sin and sought your Savior, that price had its effect. You were his. And just as a slave walked out of the marketplace following his or her new owner, you have now walked out of the marketplace of sin and you have been bought with a price. And so look at the phrase, you are to glorify God in your body. You are to glorify God for what he's done for you. I find it interesting that because the gospel of grace has been so clearly taught so well in our society for so long, many, many Christians understand the security of salvation. They understand the beauty of grace And as a church culture, we easily rest in our salvation, so much so that we forget that we also need to honor our salvation. This is forgotten in our American culture today of Christianity. Yes, we are to rest in the salvation reality that we are bought with a price and saved by grace. Nothing can ever undo that. But Paul says here, don't forget all of that. Don't forget that you were bought with a price. It needs to house now have an effect in your life, particularly your moral and your physical life. So glorify God in your body. You need to honor your salvation with how you live out of it. This part we don't like to remember too much. There's two points of application here. One is for Christians who don't think they need to be pure because they are secure in Christ. And they really don't understand that honoring the price that was paid means honoring the one who paid it in your moral life. And so we've got this invisible kind of dividing line between our position in Christ and our practices in our private lives The explosion of media opportunities with all that they bring from the questionable questionable to the deeply pornographic at the touch of a smartphone or in a stolen silent moment late at night in a home or a hotel room creates a dilemma for Christians, but the dilemma is really not a dilemma at all. Paul said you were bought with a price. You've been marvelously saved. Don't separate the the beauty of salvation from the fact that you must honor it. You serve someone else now. You don't get to rewrite the rules about purity. And my generation and the generation following it has created a sort of equivalency and, and, and and a muddling of those lines so much that the current generation of younger people are acting that out in real terms. The Barna Group did a study not too long ago across the country and asked the question, do you think it's a good idea for a single people to live together prior to marriage? And 65% of our society said, yes, I think it's a good idea. It's the best way to figure out if you're compatible. That stupid lie has been going around ever since sin opened itself up. 65% of our society says, yes, it's a good idea for singles to live together before marriage. It's the best way to find out if you're compatible. Ask a marriage counselor if that's ultimately true five years later. You can ask me. I'll tell you from my counseling it isn't. But the interesting thing is, the study showed that 35% of born-again Christians believe, yes, it's a good idea for singles to live together. It's the best way to figure out if we're compatible those numbers shouldn't be in the same universe. What am I saying? I'm saying that it's always a battle to remember that though you were bought eternally with a price, you need to honor God. We rest well in our salvation, but we do need to honor it. May God speak to our hearts from his own word about these things. So that's one point of application. Christians who don't think they need to be pure, but there's another one. And that is Christians who don't think they can ever be pure again. Because they followed the lies of the culture and because they got involved in all kinds of sexual dimensions and actions and and relationships that have deeply marked them, the phenomenon of, of the marking of sexual activity in the soul and in the psyche is a very, very powerful thing. And perhaps you lived in immorality in years prior, before you came to Christ or maybe after. And you are struggling and you wonder if you can ever be free again from the bonds and the the marks of that and the the difficulty. Perhaps there's even an unborn life that was lost. And that's in the memory of your past because of the consequences of you living the lie. I will tell you, my friend, like I said, this is the key that unlocks the bondage of that guilt. Paul says you were bought with a price. All of that was known by God and by Christ and his wonderful blood and payment covered all of that too. So the good news is you can be pure again, not just in your future life, but in your experience and victory over guilt. See, redemption and the ransom that called it into being is a great and beautiful thing. And you will join all other believers in Revelation 5 when we sing a new song saying, Worthy is the Lamb, for by your blood you ransomed people. You bought us out of the slave market of sin with all of our deeds and marks. We'll join people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation (laughs) because redemption is that powerful a gift. That's redemption. It means to be bought out of bondage for a price and never to be returned to slavery again. And it is good news. That's the first question. What does it mean? Let's go quickly to the second and the third. Well, why did this have to happen? Why is redemption such a a needed thing? I've never really heard a preacher talk about the depths of sin like you're speaking about. I've never really understood the nature of how great an issue this is. Well, you had to be redeemed because you were fully and completely a slave. Again, Dr. Boyce in his great work goes over the three ways that a person became enslaved in Roman society. There were three ways you could become a slave. He says there's a parallel between the three ways in which a person could fall into slavery in ancient Rome and how a person is said to be bound by sin in the Bible. The first way a person could fall into slavery in ancient Rome is to be born into it born into a family of slaves. You were automatically a slave. You were born without any freedom. You were born without any other future. You were born condemned by the nature of your birth. He writes in the same way, the Bible speaks of all human beings since Adam being born into sin. Isn't that true? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter five, verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? The first Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Why were you a slave in sin? Why did you need to be bought out of it? Because you were born into it. You had no other future. You might have thought you had a great future, but in God's eyes and in the eyes of the moral laws of the universe, you didn't. You needed someone to walk into the slave market that you were born into and buy you out. What a wonderful ransom bringer Jesus is. Second, he writes, one could become a slave by being conquered in a war. And that was true when, when a conquering king, king took over a city or a region, he would march the, the, the inhabitants of that city behind his army back into his own capital city and they would all be in chains shuffling behind the conquering king. Though they might have been a king or a prince in their own land or a, a prosperous person with great freedoms in their own land, the moment their territory was conquered and they were conquered by a powerful enemy, they became slaves for life. In the same way, he writes, the Bible speaks of sin ruling over a person. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that talks about the wages of sin is death. But it also talks in Romans chapter 3 about how all of us were conquered by sin from the very early moments of our life. And Romans chapter 3 goes into great detail about the fact that every one of us Is dominated by sin all of our lives. We might put a different moral face on it than some others, but none of us satisfies God who is morally perfect. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 19, gives a startling description of it. Paul says, what then? Are, Jew- are we Jews any better off because of our religious heritage? Do we have a-, a leg up in heaven? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or non-Jews, in other words, the whole world, every human being, are under sin. That's a key word. We're under the power of it all of our lives. We've been conquered by it from the very beginning of our existence, and we sin still deeply and widely all through our life. None of us can, can help it as it is written, none is righteous, not one. And what goes from verses 10 all the way through verse 19 is what I would call the MRI of the human heart. People say, well, just follow your heart. It'll lead you to the right place. (laughs) Oh, really? This is the MRI of the human heart that's not indwelt by the Lord Jesus. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, no fear of God's moral code but also no no love for God, no desire to live for him. I meet so many people that say that that, uh, that I I believe I can face God and I can talk to him about the the, the deeds of my life, and on balance, the good is going to outweigh the bad. I just need to have a moment with God. And at times, when I'm brave enough, I tell them, oh, you will have that moment. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you persist in your life rejecting him, Revelation chapter 20 says you will be resurrected and you will stand before the great white throne of God's judgment and you will have all the time you'll want. And in fact, you won't miss a thing because the Bible says a great book will be open which contains all the deeds of your life and you'll be judged on your deeds. You will have that opportunity. But as I was telling someone this week, Revelation 20 does not contain one line that tells us that one human being at the end of time standing before God, able to take all the time that they want to justify their life, ever will succeed. All will walk into an eternal punishment unless they've met Christ. You'll get your chance. I decided not to take mine by God's wonderful, overwhelming grace at a moment in time, I decided not to take mine because I knew someone had said he would take it for me. That's what you need to do, my unbelieving friend, because you've been conquered by it all your life. You just don't know any better. Finally, Dr. Boyce says the third way a person became a slave in the Roman Empire was by falling into debt they were placed under slavery and under labor to pay that debt off. But because of the unbelievable interest rates and other things in Roman society, once you entered a debtor's slavery, you rarely ever were able to earn your way out. You were in debt for life. You were in debt forever. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Really, but the Bible says only the death of the sinner can pay the bill. So really, when you look at the condition of all people as they stand before a perfectly holy God, the Bible says all people are in the slave market of sin because of how they were born, what they've done, and how much they owe. They're three times condemned, and this is why the Bible says we need a redeemer because there was no way for a slave to pay his own price. He or she had to be bought by another. That brings me to the last question. How was it accomplished? How could Jesus do such a mighty deed? Here we go, very quickly. I'm going to go with a question and answer format within this last idea. How was it accomplished? Very simply this, a price was paid. People ask, well, to whom was this price paid? If there was a price on my head and Jesus had to pay a ransom to get me out of this slavery, did he pay it to the devil? Common delusion, not true at all. My God owes nothing to the devil. My God is not at the mercy of the devil. He didn't pay a ransom price to Satan. In essence, God had a ransom price that needed to be paid to, to his own justice, to his own holiness. The price on our heads was the law of God and the perfect standard of God. We owed a price to God's justice, and it was a righteous price. We righteously owed it. Next question will be, well, who could satisfy that? An eternal God asking me for an everlasting price. The only one who could satisfy that was an eternal God coming and paying an everlasting price. The marvelous Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I mentioned First Peter to you and opened that to you as we began the message. Oh, you were not redeemed with perishable things, he said, things that were just earthly. You were redeemed with someone who was eternal. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. A perfect God came and paid in in an amount of time on the cross an everlasting price for your sin, his precious blood. Another question might be, well, how do I know God will accept that payment in my case. Pastor, you don't even understand. You've done a good job of describing how dark sin is from your Bible. I can tell you how dark sin is from my own past. How can I be sure he'll accept that price in my case? You can be sure because he planned it for you before all time. Listen to this. Go down to verse 20 of 1 Peter 1. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He's eternal God, and he and the Father and the Holy Spirit made a decision before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be sent from heaven to earth, from eternity into time, and he would take the penalty for your sin. Your face was in his eyes. Your name was on his heart. Your sin was in his sights, and he would endure it all for you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He came to the planet in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. He atoned for you. That's how you know he can accept it because he planned it from forever. And the resurrection declared it. Look at verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, brought him back into heaven, let him ascend back to the throne room. (laughs) Do you realize what happened when Jesus ascended? The resurrection proves that God, the father accepted the payment of Jesus for you and for me. If Jesus wasn't a perfect enough sacrifice, he would have stayed in the tomb. If he was an eternal God and the price wasn't fully paid, he would still be in the ground. But when the Bible says he rose from the grave, it declared to the entire universe that the perfect price was sufficiently paid. And when he ascended into heaven, the book of Hebrews says in chapter nine, that when he walked into the throne room of God, he came bearing the scars of his sacrifice. And he came saying, father, I'm back. See my scars. It is the proof of the price that I paid for her. My wonderful bride. My beloved church. Every single one. Behold, Father, the proof of the price. Oh, he's done it all. Then you might ask, well, how do I accept my pardon? (laughs) This is a momentous thing. Do I need to get my life together? Do I need to become more deeply in knowledge of his truth? Do I need to earn my way into this marvelous possession? Oh, no. All you have to do is what verse 21 of 1 Peter 1 says, who through him are believers in God. You simply need to believe. It can happen in a moment in time. And if you truly understand it, It will pour passion into every day of your life. I've told you the story in the past, but it bears repeating, of maybe one of the most famous sinners in human history. (laughs) His name was John Newton. He was an English sea captain, brought up in a Christian home, rejected it all, lived a life of the deepest depravity imaginable as he sailed the seas. He eventually became a slave trader and, in fact, fell into slavery of his own at such a point when the people he was dealing with double-crossed him and enslaved him on an island. In the midst of a humongous storm on the Atlantic some years later, he was terrified about death and, in the hold of that swinging ship, remembered the gospel teaching of his mother and gave his life to Christ. After that, he followed a different captain, began to go and minister to different people and became an evangelist. And uh, he ended his ministry by pastoring a a church in one of the darkest little parts of London for many years. He pastored well into his old age when his friends urged him to, to retire because by the time he reached 80, he was almost blind and partially deaf. But he said, what? Shall the old African blasphemer stop speaking while he can speak? Stop preaching while he can? The story is in fact told of a person that would come up into the pulpit with Newton in his last years and he was responsible for pointing to the text that Newton needed to preach so he could see it and find it in the Bible. And after the finger was pointed, Newton went a preaching. But in December 1806, his end finally came. And a Christian friend and fellow pastor came to be with him, and he wrote this. I saw Mr. Newton near the closing scene. He was hardly able to talk, but his last words to me were these. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Two weeks ago, when I was able to fly to be with my father, who had lived a tremendous life of achievement and influence, in a few weeks when I go back for his celebration of life, people will be coming from all over the country, from government, from entertainment, from professional sports, from industry. They will come to give tribute to his accomplishments. But as you know, my father steadfastly refused the gospel of Christ and the offer of redemption. All through the years that I knew Jesus and even in my last conversation when he was still lucid. When I arrived, I was told by the nurse in the hospice there that he might be in his final moments. And I had an a earth- In a moment of time, I had to capture the gospel I had taught taught him all my life and speak it into his ear, though he was in coma and unresponsive. God, by his mercy, brought this story to my mind. And I reached down and I, I said, Dan, I love you and I respect you and I honor you for all you've done and I thank you for all you've done but I remind you as your son that your passport to heaven is still open. All you need to do, Dad, in this moment is tell God that you've been a great sinner, as I have, but that Jesus is a great Savior. I don't know whether in that moment or in the moments to follow in a private moment with God Almighty before his passing. I don't know that my father responded to that redemption message or not. I hope so. But I can't know. But believer, you can know. (laughs) And you do know that he has set you free and that you shall be with him because the price was paid for you.